0: So a couple of weeks ago, when we had the crisis of the espresso machine not working downstairs, <laughs> I uh, went over and visited, visited my friends at Dutch Bros. And they gave me a nice cup of espresso. And uh, they put this blue lid on the, on the top. And I shared this with you at the opening of a service several weeks ago. Uh, but it sets up the series that we're in perfectly. And it says, You Radiate Pure Awesome. And, and I want to show this to you. This should be on every lid that we have in this place. And I want to tell you that you, all of us, radiate pure awesome. And... Uh, just so we're clear about it, the awesome isn't necessarily you, although it's some of you, but it's the Holy Spirit that's inside us. And so the Holy Spirit gets inside us and the Holy Spirit radiates the light of God's love out through us. And so in a way every Christian, this should be our motto. You radiate pure awesome. We need that reminder uh, every day. Uh, Like I said we just started a series last week. It's on the book of 1 John, and so if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do, or if you have a device, that works too. However you interact and engage with the text, open to 1 John. We will be visiting some verses, particularly in uh, the second chapter today, but uh, as we, um, I mean, the question that we have posed, it's out on the banner that's out front, it's, I think it's on the front of your bulletin and, and other things that go along with this series. The, the series is Illuminate, Radiating Pure Awesome, God's Love Light Through Us to the Community. The question is, are you glowing with the gospel? And uh, that's, what, that's what we want to do, is glow, radiate. And uh, so we started this last week, and uh, in the opening chapter of... First John, uh, we kind of get a theological setup, framework for the rest of this letter. And um, John is encouraging his readers to pay attention, to remain engaged with John's teaching. Because you see what was happening in their church is people were, they were getting at each other. There, were, there was some tension, some conflict. And part of the conflict was um, promoted by some people who were wanting to go their own direction, uh, that were teaching some things that were contrary to the gospel message that Jesus had left with his disciples. So John, what he says is, <clears throat> he reminded them, I'm telling you how it was from the very beginning. I was with Jesus personally, firsthand. I, could, I saw him with my own eyes. I heard him with, with my own ears. I could even reach out and grasp him. I could hug him. I could touch him. He was physical and real to me. I know what he taught, is what John was trying to say is, and so because I was there in and firsthand and, and I I saw, and I heard, and, and I could even touch, pay attention to what I have to tell you. Remain faithful to this teaching. Don't be led astray, is what John is trying to tell us in the opening verses, and, and if you remember from last week, we talked about a couple things. We said, we got to be honest when we, when we... Talk about love and light and things like that and and, and uh, communing together as a church family and, and living amongst and with one another, but we have to we have to be honest. We have to be honest with people in our community, we have to be honest with people in here. We we can't say one thing and do another because that creates confusion and tension. We have to be honest with ourselves. We have to recognize when, where we have flaws, where we have sin in our life, and we need to be able to confess that and admit it and, and, and just be brutally honest when we look in the mirror. Confess it to God. And the third way, we need to be honest with God, confess that sin to Him. But we need to be honest about God. Because when, when we aren't honest with ourselves, and when we live in ways that are contrary to maybe what we say, like we profess Christianity, but if people don't see that coming out through us, it creates that question mark. of, well, what, what does it mean to be a Christian? So if we're, if we're confusing in that way and we lie to ourself, then what we're saying is, is that God doesn't know what he's talking about. And so we can't lie about God. We have to be honest about God. And with God. And so that's kind of how we set up the series last week. And I put a challenge out there for you. As we are journeying together through 1 John over uh, these six weeks, the challenge was do you remember? Read 1 John how many times? 25, right? And I read the whole thing last week. So 25 turned into 24. So that's four times a week. You doing okay with that? Don't ten times we've got a report of ten. Do I hear twelve? Do I hear <laughs> I just hope that you will engage with the text. If you haven't if you didn't hit four, that's okay. There's time to catch up. But I want I want you to be immersed in these words. And you'll find that, that John kind of repeats himself and, and there is a distinct theme of the letters that are behind me that spell out love. I think my favorite comment from last Sunday as we were exiting the sanctuary, somebody just said, you know, with those letters hovering over what we did is like love was already here before you even opened the Bible. And that, that's true, right? God is here. God is in this place. He has joined us, and we are in awe vertically of him so that we can let go of the other horizontal addictions and attractions and attitudes that that we tend to grasp and hang on to, so um, what I want to do is uh, we 're going to kind of journey through a good chunk of chapter two this morning, and instead of reading the whole thing at once i, I want to there 's three distinct sections, and so this morning I would I kind of want to teach you the text instead of preach it to you. I hope that's okay with you, but, but there's, a, there's so much that are, that's packed into these verses that what I want to do is to be able to break it down into some smaller pieces that maybe when we see it in smaller pieces and increments that, that we can chew on those things a little bit better than trying to take a bite out of the, the whole thing. And so in, this, uh, in the text that we're looking at today, starting in, in verse 3, John says this, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. In other words, whoever abides in Christ should do what Jesus said. Follow his commands. I think it's a fair question. And the one that I want to lay out for us this morning is, how do you know? I mean, how do you really know if you know God? you ever wonder that you You say all these things, you read the scriptures, you might pray, come to this place for worship and and sing about knowing and and loving God, but do you ever just wonder do i do I really know him? I think that's a fair question for. For all Christians to ask and to think about, and that's the question I want, I want to start with. And in our texts, to the, the, these verses that we just read uh, suggest that if we know God, we will begin to love Him. So as we begin to know God, we fall in love with God, we recognize the ways in which he has forgiven us, extended his grace to us, and mercy, the way that he gives us peace when we need it. And we start to fall in love with that. And John says that as we begin to know God and as we begin to fall in love with him, that what happens is the overflow out of that is that we will strive to obey God. I mean, verse 6, whoever claims to know him, or abide in him, abide is like one of John's favorite words. He uses it so many times in, in this letter. You go back to the Gospel of John, abide, abide, abide. It's all over the place. If you abide in him, you should do as Jesus did. Not should as in following a long list of rules, but it just makes sense that if you know something you know God, and then you fall in love with Him. That, that the natural outpouring of that would be, I want to do what He says. Which you could say that what John has done is He has given us a moral test, a moral gauge uh, to, to help us answer the question, How do you know if you really know God? John says, Well, there's a moral test. Do you obey Him? Is there fruit? in your walk. And so then if if that is a positive answer, yes, I am obeying to the best of my ability, God, what Jesus wants me to do. So the other end of that spectrum over here, it would make sense then, if you follow the logic, to say that not doing, not following the commands of Jesus... Would suggest, or at least call into question, whether or not we really know God, right? Maybe I can maybe I can say it this way. I frequently get knocks on my door at at my house from uh, our missionary friends of a variety of faiths, and. Uh, they just so happen to be in the neighborhood while I'm eating dinner. And, um, you know, I, honestly, I, I think that I'm required reading on our district because I like to ask questions. And I engage with people who come in and knock on my door. I want to find out what makes them tick. I want to find out you know, what, what is at the core of, of what they believe? And, and really what I want to do is, is glow the gospel. To have an interaction with them that's meaningful, that maybe they would just see a glimpse of Jesus through me. It's like being a reverse ministry, missionary. They come and knock on my door. If you knock on my door, then I get to talk too. I used to not be really good at this. In my younger years, when people knocked on my door that opposed my, my faith or thought differently, I, I was more adversarial. I didn't mind getting into an argument. And I have asked forgiveness for that, and I know God's forgiven me, but I think I do much better now. I'm much more charitable in my old age. And, um, <laughs> <clears throat> so... <laughs> Recently, I had some uh, young men knock on my door, and it always intrigues me what, how they start the conversation. Usually, the first question is something like, um, have you ever talked to a missionary before? It really throws them off when I say something like, well, I consider myself to be a missionary. Oh, you're one of us? Well, no, not in the same sense, but sort of. Well, they wanted to talk, and, and I had some questions, and, and I, but I really didn't have time to chat that day, and I said, you know what, uh, I have some questions for you, and I asked them, and they said, well, we don't know. Could we come back and talk about it? I said, sure, you can come back. You know where I live, and they said, well, what about Tuesday? Okay, come back on Tuesday. Well, Tuesday didn't end up being convenient for me, and so I kind of went upstairs when they knocked, I'm like, oh, I have to but I had extended the invitation. So they came in, and we got into a conversation about grace and where grace fits into the equation of our faith. And uh, my, uh, my LDS friends are convinced that they have to earn grace, that grace is dependent 100% on what they do. And the Christian faith teaches, the Christian faith believes that God's grace just exists, that God has poured out his grace upon everybody. He lavishes it upon us freely. It's available for anybody to accept and interact. All we have to do is to choose to step into God's grace and say, yes, Lord, I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. Extend that grace and forgiveness and mercy to me. And it's there. So, the if you want to, any math teachers in the room? I know there's one in here that's studying to be a math teacher. But if you were to try and put grace into a mathematical formula, the the LDS version of the equation would look something like the law plus my effort, my work equals grace. And the variable in that is my level of work. The more I work, the more grace I get. In the Christian equation, you could say that uh, God's grace plus Jesus plus me equals obedience. Right? That's what I think John is trying to tell us in these first verses that we read together this morning. These verses confirm that truth, that our, our, our obedience to God is an overflowing reaction to His grace and forgiveness in our lives. As we know God more, we fall in love with Him more, and as we fall in love with Him more, we would want to please Him and obey Him and, and do what He asks us to do. Right? Yeah? You can interact with me, it's okay. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he put it this way. He says that uh, only the one who believes is obedient. And only the one who is obedient believes. And I don't want you to hear this the wrong way. Because too often we read a text like this, and we feel a weight. We feel a pressure that there's now a long list of checkboxes that we have to do. And obedience is not meant to be oppressive. Obedience is not meant to be a burden. Obedience is not following a long list of rules, but it's Obedience is meant to be a blessing to us, a natural response to what God has done in us and is doing through us. And, and if, you, if, if you want to bust it down into even smaller pieces than, than that, I would tell you four things about obedience. Obedience reveals, and this is in verse 3, obedience reveals the genuineness of our faith verse 4 obedience reveals the authenticity of our confession verse 5 obedience reveals the maturing of our love verse 6 obedience reveals growth in Christ likeness see god god saves us God doesn't save us simply to go to heaven when we die. God saves us so that we can be conformed to his character. God saves us so that we can be conformed to his perfect image. God saves us so that when those things happen, we glow with the gospel and other people can be reached and they see him working through through us, and that's how the kingdom expands. And in in church, you might hear a 50-cent word called sanctification. It's a popular word a few decades ago, but it still exists way back from the beginning. To be sanctified is to be filled with the Holy Spirit and become more and more like Jesus. That's what John's talking about here. It's the whole process of coming to know and be filled with Jesus. And he goes on, verses uh, 7 through 11. He kind of explicates this a little bit more. He says, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him, And in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light, get this, and hates his brother or sister in Christ is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother or sister abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother or sister is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. Hmm. I think if you want to, verses 3 through 6 kind of gave us a, what did we say, a, a moral gauge, a, a moral test. Verses 7 through 11 give us another test. And how do we know if we know God? And the test in verses 7 through 11 is more social in nature. It's more ethical in nature. The command that he's talking about here, it's not a new command. The command that he's talking about is to love one another. And it's not a new command in the sense that this concept had been taught to new believers since the time that they uh, believed in Jesus, that they converted to Christianity, and, and it's not a new command in the sense um, that Jesus had taught his disciples how to love one another or to love one another. I mean, if you flip uh, over in your Bibles to uh, John's other, one of John's other books in uh, the Gospel of, of John, chapter 13, this is how Jesus says it, just flat out. He's talking to his disciples uh, chapter 13, verse 34 and uh, 35. A new commandment I give you that you love one another. He goes on, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So that's the command that, that John is getting at in, in this letter to, to the church. And what Jesus did while he was here and was with his disciples and, and what he taught, he took, he took two commands from, from the Old Testament. Uh, Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6, verses, verse 5, in, it's part of the, what we call the Shema, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He takes that piece and, and he brings it together with a, a verse from Leviticus. And I have to get the numbers right because there's some... There's some verses in Leviticus that, oh my, how did that get in there? Leviticus 19, 18 talks about loving your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus takes the love God and he pairs it with love people, love one another. Love like Jesus did. That, that's where it's a new command: The joining of love God, love people together, and then Jesus qualifies that, you got to do it like I have showed you how. I demonstrated how to do this while I was here. I've taught about this. This is what love should look like. Had a sacrificial quality to it, even unto death for Jesus. If you love like Christ... John says you're in the light and you you shine the light and you participate in chasing away the darkness but John says I think I'm pretty good authority that if you don't love like Jesus loved you're still in the dark and John hones in on an issue that this community was facing. Specifically that some of the people, they didn't like each other that much. They, they were at odds. They butted heads with one another. Um, maybe it was personality difference. Maybe it was a stylistic difference. We're not told, other than they weren't getting along verse 11 if if you hate a brother or sister John says you're still lost You're still in the dark You're still tripping over the coffee table in the middle of the night You don't know where you're going the love and the light of Christ has not yet invaded your heart. You're still loved by God. Don't hear that God does not love you. You are still loved by God. But His love and His light have not worked its way far enough into your heart for you to reflect that. There's a social, there's an ethical test, gauge, to whether or not we know if we know God. Yes, do we love one another? Do we practice that? It's hard to be told stuff like this, isn't it? To be challenged on this? Because how this comes back to me is, but pastor, I really don't hate anybody. That's too strong a word. So it's really easy for us to read this text and say, oh, that doesn't apply to me. I don't, I don't hate anybody. But maybe let's we'll talk about the word hate for just a minute or two and then reevaluate where we are. Hate in the sense that John uses this word, it's the Greek word meseho. And it means to detest. It means to hate, like we think about it. But it also means to love less. It also means to overlook fellow Christians. It also means to have any kind of feelings or thoughts of spiritual superiority over another brother Poor sister. It also means those smug attitudes that we sometimes find that filter into us, that that make us say things like, "Well, I know how to do it the right way. In any other way is therefore wrong." John said, hey. "Do we need to reevaluate whether or not this text applies?" it hits me square between the eyes. Makes me think, drives me to my knees to pray and ask for forgiveness. You know, when we reach a point like this, the hard thinking that is required, it has to be from the posture of kneeling and begging for forgiveness before God. Because the way that John uses hate, I think, encompasses every believer at some point. The question that I want you to think about is, when we talk about loving one another, the question that I think should just maybe hover over us in every interaction that we have with people in our church and in our community, in our neighborhoods, in our homes— In our places of work, is how can I respond with love in each and every moment? In a sacrificial, giving way that thinks of the other person's needs before my own. How can I respond with love in thought, in speech, and in deed, in every moment, in every conversation, in every interaction that we have? What would that look like for you? See, we, we learn more of what John is saying. We become more like Christ when we when we take our engagement with the scripture, and we take it out of the classroom, and when we put it to practice on the street. There's a Christian author, I think it's Robert Candlish, who says, Doctrinal Christianity is always old. Experimental Christianity is always new. I like that. Because when we put something into practice, we learn a whole lot about ourselves, And we, we learn a whole lot about other people. When we take what we read in Scripture and we put it into practice out on the street, we learn a whole lot of things. So in that sense, it's, it's always new. So I would encourage you to practice loving others, even when you might not want to. See, what happens is when we complain or when we pout or when we talk amongst ourselves, we're, we're diminishing our faith, and potentially we're blocking and tripping other believers who look in and they see what we say and they match it with what we do and it confuses them and they, maybe they're newer Christians and they just want to take a step back and say, no, that, that just doesn't seem right. Let's be people who match what we profess with what we do. Let's begin to practice loving one another even when it's challenging. See, what happens is when we do things like that, it's sin. And if you go back to those first verses that we talked about last week, some people in that community were saying, no, John, we don't, we don't hate each other. We don't like each other very much, but we don't hate each other. And they're denying that they had that sin in their life. And John says, that's flat out wrong. Be honest with yourself. But he moves on from that. He just drops that heavy load on him. Then I think maybe he sat back and he's like, you know what, I probably should encourage them for a little bit. I love that about John. Uh, Verses 12 to, to 14, if you have your Bible still open, I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I am writing to you, fathers and mothers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men and women, because you the evil one i write to you children because you know the father i write to you fathers and mothers because you know him who is from the beginning i write to you young men and women because you are strong and the word of god abides in you and you have overcome the evil one it's so good he said it twice I can just imagine Pastor John sitting there, having dropped that heavy load and saying, you know what, I need to encourage them a little bit. And you know what, I should probably put it into a poetry and have a a little music playing behind it. And this song has such a good message. You know what, I think we're going to sing it two times in a row. You know why? Because sometimes when you repeat something, sometimes you miss it the first time you sing it, and you have to say it again. so that it sinks in. You ever watch um, the Andy Griffith show? Gomer Pyle? Say it again. Sometimes we need to do that with Scripture and with the songs that we sing and the prayers that we pray. Say it again, so that it sinks down to a deeper level and we can just let it sit there and stew and resonate. Peel back the layers of the onion and get down to the core. There's so many blessings of walking in the light, the, the joys of walking in step with God each and every moment. But, but it's so easy to forget these things. It's easy to get caught up in, in life. It's easy to get caught up in the challenges and the hard stuff that we face. But John assures us he says, Remember these things. Let this be encouragement to you. He says, You are forgiven. Jesus cleanses you from all sin when you confess and you ask for forgiveness. He remembers your sin no more, so you don't have to carry that baggage of guilt around with you any longer. You're forgiven. Go ahead and let it go. He already did. He says, you can know God. You know God. You have fellowship with God. Think about that. We belong to God's Family, he has adopted us in, and he says, "I want you to go out and I want you to represent the family name well." John says, "You know God," and then he says, "You're victorious. You've already won. Satan has been defeated, and you are part of the winning team. And you need you need to remember that that when you walk in step with God, you are beating down the devil." amen? Amen. Sometimes the devil, he just wants to get in your ear, and he wants to throw accusations at you. He wants to tear you down and slow your step. Hey, Dave, remember when you said this? Remember when you did that? How can you forgive yourself for that? You ever have that voice in your ear reminding you of past sins, of past failures? John says, forget about it. You're already won. You've defeated the devil. You can move on from that. You can put it back in his face and say, you know what? I've confessed that. Jesus has forgiven me. Be gone from me. As Christians, we have entered into this Great inheritance of of forgiveness, of fellowship with God and with other believers, and this inheritance of of being victorious over the devil, but but the, the temptations don't disappear from us. Sometimes I just need to be reminded, have my face put back in these things, you're forgiven. You have fellowship with God. You've already won. Sometimes I just need to hear that. And these verses then connect with the last ones that I want to look at today and the last ones we'll have time to look at today. In 15 to 17, John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires or lusts of the flesh and the desires or lusts of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. See, John gives us this cautionary warning to watch our thoughts, to watch our desires, and to watch our behaviors very closely. See, the truth is, all of us have a desire for love. All humans are wired for love. We, we need To receive love and we need to give love that's how we're white we are made in the image of god and god is love and so therefore it's deep down inside every human being and if you i titled the sermon looking for love the world looks for love in lots of things you know if you want to know where the world looks for love all you got to do is listen to country music So back in the 80s, I think it was 1980, there was the number one hit country song. So this goes back a ways, but the song is called Looking for Love. Johnny Lee sang it. Number one smash hit on the country charts back in 1980. Just listen to this. Well, I spent a lifetime looking for you. Single bars and good time lovers were never true. Playing a fool's game hoping to win, telling those sweet lies, and losing again. I'll bless the day I discover another heart looking for love. And I was alone then, no love in sight. And I did everything I could to get me through the night. Don't know where it started or where it might end. I'd turn to a stranger just like a friend. And here's the chorus. I was looking for love in all the wrong places. I was looking for love in too many faces, searching their eyes, looking for traces of what I'm dreaming of, of what I'm hoping to find in a friend and a lover. That's one of a whole bunch. I did a couple Google searches, because I like to do that. I googled the question, where do people look for love? You get all sorts of answers. <laughs> <laughs> what I wanted to tell you was there were 1.27 billion, with a B, hits. I googled the question, how do I find love? Again, <laughs> all sorts of answers. 1 seven to billion hits on Google. People are starved for love. People are starved for attention. People are starving for a place to belong and meaningful relationship because I'm not just talking about romantic love here. If you go online, you can find quizzes on where you can find love and what kind of love it is that you need, Uh, I just, I, I, I remember seeing phrases like I'm desperate for love multiple times. And if you're following along, if you did any of the reading this week, you don't have to look any further. John says that if you seek love and satisfaction in the world... The love of God isn't in you. Doesn't mean that you won't find love uh, or experience love out in the world. What John is saying is that any love in the world is not the ultimate source of the love that will ultimately satisfy you. And when John uses the term world, he's, he uses the Greek word cosmos, uh, which which can mean the universe, it can mean all created uh, things or life on earth, but when John uses this word most frequently, he uses it in the the, kind of the meaning range of the ways in which human society lives apart from God. So anything, anything out in the world, when John refers to it that way, is anything out there that's contrary to the will of God. He's not saying that everything in the world is evil. He's not saying that when, when you go out there to, to reject all aspects of our culture because many, there's many good things out there that reflect the glory and the goodness of God. He's not saying all is bad. He's saying don't idolize it and make it your ultimate source. And in this final section today, John, he gives us, uh, he gives us three things that the world promises but is unable, is impotent to deliver, and the, and the first thing is you can't, the world can't give you what you ultimately need, the world can't give you what it promises to give you, and, and the world can't give you anything that will last. In this first one, the world, the world can't give you what you need is verse fifteen. The longing of every heart is to love and be loved, but but the objects of our affections, John says, need to be rightly ordered if we are truly going to find ultimate and lasting satisfaction. He says, in essence, choose wisely between light and dark. Choose wisely between truth and lies. Choose wisely between God or the world. God's love is, is all you need. It's what you were created for. Don't give your love and allegiance to something that will never satisfy you. The world can't give you what you need. The second one is, the world can't give you what it promises. Verse 16, for all that is in the world, the desires or lusts of the flesh and the desires or lusts of the eyes and the pride of life, that's not from the Father, but it's from the world. That's what John says. And there's, there's, did you see that? There's three things. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, lust, or, and the pride of, of life. Those three things he, he kind of hones in on. And the lust of the flesh are, you know, uh, things that, that work their way in. The, the temptations that we face that are attached to natural desires. So our natural appetite for, for food and material stuff stuff, leads us to gluttony. Or our sexual appetites, the ways that God has gifted us as humans to enjoy sexuality, we pervert that. And and what happens is it turns into sexual immorality. It's the lusts of the desires of the flesh. And then there's the, the lusts of the eyes. Our our eyes are windows into our souls and our minds, and everything that we see comes in, and it stays in here somehow. There's some things you just can't unsee. It's inside. hard to ignore. We look at the life of King David. He was out strolling around his castle, and it was the springtime of the year when kings are supposed to be out at war, is what the Bible says. We'll get to this story later in July, I think, or early August. But uh, King David's out strolling, and oh, the window to his soul into his mind. There's Bathsheba. She's out on her porch taking a bath. Led to a whole bunch of sin. Almost brought King David down completely. And then there's the, the pride of life. Humans, we're, we're proud people. Proud creatures. It's easy for us to be arrogant. We end up glorifying ourselves instead of glorifying God. We make idols out of wealth and achievements and, and our physical appearance and our career and all sorts of stuff. Peter, Peter's letter, First Peter, I think it's 5, maybe verse 6, he says, humble yourself before the Lord, and in time he will lift you up. He will exalt you. Well, it's not a new phenomenon. The lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. It goes all the way back to Genesis. If you get your Bibles open, just flip back with me to uh, Genesis uh, chapter 3. Remember a couple characters? Adam and Eve? They're kind of famous in the Bible. So, the devil comes and approaches them, and God had separated a tree from his garden and said, I don't want you to eat off of this tree. And Well, this is what happened. Chapter 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food. Oh, look at that tree. Yeah, some piece of that fruit. That would be good, lust of the flesh. Hmm? And that it was a delight to the eyes. Wow. That looks good. I need me some of that. Lust of the eyes. Lust of the flesh. That fruit looks good to eat. She saw it and desired it. Oh, that looks good. Lust of the eyes. But it goes on. And that the tree was desired to make one wise. Oh, I could be like God, I could have that wisdom. Pride of life, and then they ate. They took it. Did what was contrary to what God had said. It's not a new phenomenon. It's not a, a new problem. It goes all the way back. And when Jesus was in the wilderness, and when he was tested, and when Satan came to him, he gave him three temptations that were the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Hey, Jesus, turn these stones into bread. You need something to eat. Hey, Jesus, look at all these kingdoms of the world. I'll give them to you if you worship me. Look at everything that you could have. Hey, Jesus, look at the top of that temple. Let's go up there, and and you know what? You can show how powerful and great you are. You can jump off, and the angels will come and save you. It's the pride of, of life. And Jesus responded with Scripture every time and defeated the devil. I suppose it's that way for us, too. The world can't give you what it promises. And verse 17 says, the world can't give you anything that will last. It's already fading and passing away. So as we close, I'm going to ask the worship team to come back and uh, we're going to sing the doxology together and we'll pray and we'll go. But sometimes I just need to know, what does this look like? When this hits the street in my life, what might it look like? So I made two lists, things of the world, things of God. You can make your own evaluation, but things of the world would say, focus on me. Things of God, focus on God. Things of the world, make as much money as possible. Things of God, give away as much money as possible. Even spend yourself. Live comfortably. Life is not about comfort. Do hard things to reap an eternal reward. Make a name for myself. Make God's name great. Teach children to love themselves and seek fulfillment in their life. Teach children to love and obey God. Make an idol of your body, of your fashion, and your possessions. Treat your body as the temple of the Holy Spirit. Cultivate an inner beauty. Stay married to your spouse for as long as that person meets your needs. Love your spouse for life. Sacrificially. Serve your spouse as Christ served the church. Do good things when you can. Cultivate a life of being a servant. Seek power and influence. Always try and get your way. Give preference to other people. There's a story circulated in the church that uh, that when the Apostle John was nearing the end of his life, he was carried before the church on the equivalent of what we would call a stretcher. to to kind of deliver his final address to the people. So they get him there, and he looked out, and he said, Love one another. Love one another. That's all he said. They took him away. Somebody asked him, Why is that the only thing that you said? And he said, because that's enough. Love one another. Because that, my friends, is enough. The people of God said, amen.